Welcome to the Private Cancer Physicians podcast series on managing patients with cancer. Thank you to Gilead for sponsoring this podcast. I'm Richard DeBoer. I'm a medical oncologist in Melbourne working at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and the Epworth Freemasons and specialising in the management of patients with breast cancer. The PCPA is a dynamic, not-for-profit oncology specialist organisation that aims to improve the care of cancer patients in the private health system. We believe that cancer care should be the absolutely best it can be for our patients, for their families, and also for our members who are entrusted to care for them. In this podcast, entitled The Antibody Drug Conjugates, Transforming Care in Metastatic Breast Cancer, we will be discussing the antibody drug conjugates, also known as the ADCs, and the transformative role that they are playing in the fight against metastatic breast cancer. For this podcast, I'm joined by two very esteemed, very experienced breast cancer physicians. I'm pleased to be able to be joined by Professor Hope Rugo, who's the Director of Breast Oncology and Clinical Trials, Education, and the Medical Director of Cancer Infusion Services at the UCSF in San Francisco, California, US. And she's very well known to many of us who work in the field as really one of the preeminent researchers as well as clinicians for patients with breast cancer. I'm also joined by a good friend and colleague from here in Melbourne, Dr. Blinda Yo, who's a medical oncologist at the Austin Hospital and is also a clinician scientist at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Center. And as always, very impressive how she combines great clinical skills with also her research and laboratory efforts and techniques. So I think we've got a great group to talk about this really interesting, very dynamic and very exciting area about the antibody drug conjugates. And with that introduction, I'd like to ask Hope how she sees the antibody drug conjugates and how they differ to the standard of care chemotherapy agents. You know, this is such an exciting topic for all of us, and it sort of pervades everything we're discussing now in terms of treatment in clinical practice and clinical research. Antibody drug conjugates, you know, they first came to breast cancer with trastuzumab amtansine or TDM1, and we wrote all sorts of things about how these were smart bombs, you know. They would deliver the payload, the toxic payload, directly to the cancer cell because they could target a protein expressed on the cancer cell, in that case, her too. But we've gone a long way since then. It took a long time, but now we've gone a long way since there. We have uh, new antibody drug conjugates with very potent antibodies, and they're such high affinity antibodies. It doesn't really matter how much of the target is expressed, apparently, based on our current data. So unlike TDM1, which only worked for truly HER2 positive disease, we have two antibody drug conjugates that are approved that actually are effective even when the target is not expressed at very high amounts or maybe at all. Still learning more about that. The other aspect of the antibody drug conjugate that's been improved a lot is the both the linker and the payload. So the linker has to be plasma stable so you don't release the payload into the circulation, but it also needs to be digested easily in a cell, regardless of whether it's a specialized cancer cell. There's some controversy about the payload, if the payload is membrane permeable or not. So, you know, this sort of idea of more water solubility or less so. TDM1, the payload is not water soluble, it's not membrane permeable, but with these newer ADCs, some of which, but not all, have a high drug to antibody ratio, they seem to be effective even with a lower drug to antibody ratio, they all seem to have at least some degree of what we've referred to as a bystander effect, where the 
payload can be released from the cancer cell and kill neighboring cells, which may have something to do with the efficacy, even when the target is not well expressed. So we have this sort of new construct, which is has a high efficacy and also seem, depending on the payload, can have not the cumulative toxicity we see with some of our other naked chemotherapy drugs. And the hope is less off-target toxicity from these agents as well. And the data that we've had so far suggesting that these ADCs are markedly more effective in all disease subtypes that we treat in breast cancer suggests that we may be able to at least replace some chemotherapy with antibody drug conjugates in the future. With the ability of the newer ADCs to target and be effective in patients with you know, lower and lower, I suppose, antigen, do we ever need to test for the presence of the target in patients or can we just you know, do you think the day will come when we can give these antibody drug conjugates to basically any patient with metastatic breast cancer? It's such a great question because, you know, again, we tested TDM1 and trastuzumab in patients whose tumors weren't HER2 positive, but had a little HER2 and they weren't effective. But TDXD, trastuzumab, druxtecan seems to work even when there's very low expression of HER2. And sasetuzumab, govotecan, that's a trope 2 ADC, works even in tumors that have very low expression of trope 2. Now, the one thing I will say is that both HER2 and trope 2 are very highly expressed, so not at the highest levels, the way we define HER2 positivity, for example, but almost all breast cancer cells express some amount of these targets. And the ADCs seem to be able to overcome very low expression, meaning that we don't need to test for the expression of a particular protein that the antibody is targeted to. But I think that this is an evolving area. Belinda, I don't know if what you think, you know, do you think that at some day we'll be looking for those tumors that are zero in expression and not treating in that setting? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure we're going to get into a discussion about her too low, whether it's real or whether it's something, it's a construct through the development of certain drugs in the trial design. I think it's really interesting, Hope, you commented on the fact, I think we've tried so hard to subtype out breast cancer. We're talking about targeted agents, and now we're actually finding these agents that really do work seemingly across the spectrum, although clearly some in better subtypes than others, and TDXD and HER2 amplified breast cancer is pretty impressive. But you know, we've got data with HER2 low and HER2 zero, and we can even talk about somewhere between HER2 zero and HER2 one. So I suspect, I mean, it's now, we're now in our second decade of giving these in the clinic. And the first decade was slow, right? We had TDM1 and really not much else in the clinic. If you think about the last three or four years, even reviewing some of the data that's been published and presented in the last 12 months, it's now really exploding. And I mean, the complicated nature of the three components of these ADCs and how you need to get each one right and then, you know, be able to combine them, I think is is something that's obviously well beyond my brain. But I think they are still intravenous agents at this stage. And so we got to remember that metastatic breast cancer is still a disease, at least for the beginning part, that the majority of patients still have a driver like estrogen and we've got some pretty good oral agents. So I think sequencing these is still a really important question because they've got amazing data, certainly for efficacy, pretty good tolerability data with some exceptions I'm sure we'll get into, but finding their place in each subtype and finding their place even within those subtypes as to the order in which we give them, I think is where the next five five to 10 years is going to be. I agree. I mean, it's an interesting point you bring up that this is still chemotherapy, <laughs> the IV part, because you know people have said with the explosion of you know the data in HER2 low and now hormone receptor positive disease, with TDXD and sasetizumab respectively, that 
you know, maybe we want to treat patients right up front. But, you know, if you're on an antibody drug conjugate, getting IV therapy, you are almost always going to have more toxicity than endocrine therapy and certainly our CDK4-6 inhibitors and maybe our newer targeted agents to the uh, PI3 kinase pathway or AKT pathway. So, you know, I still think that we're looking at sequential endocrine therapy for disease that's not HER2 positive, HER2 positive being in its own sort of little group there where we usually, although sometimes not, start with chemo plus HER2 targeted therapies or maybe in the future with the ADC. But I think that's important. And the sequencing idea is interesting, you know, how you would ever give an ADC after an ADC. And I think that brings up a really interesting point about how you would use these drugs in sequence. I mean, we obviously had from Destiny 2 that you can do that. TDXD works after TDM1, although I guess now we've got a a superior drug to, to TDM1. So that sequencing may not necessarily be relevant now, but and, and we've got complete responses with TDXD. So then what do you do? I mean, clearly there are some patients who tolerate these drugs for years, but still got to come in every three weeks for intravenous care, chemotherapy that even though it's sheltered, there's chemo still in there. And I think the patients love the idea that this is not naked. And so their tolerance to these agents really does prove that. But, you know, when you get complete responses in maybe one in five of your patients, it does beg the question as to how long you really do need to keep these going. And in fact, in preparing for this podcast, I tried to go back. In fact, I'm sure you guys might know the answer to this, but I was trying to look at the complete responses from the Cleopatra study and I couldn't find it. I don't even know whether we were talking about complete responses in those days. I mean, we've all got patients who have probably been killed on that regime. Yeah, I was just interested to know, you know, because 20% in this in this current era with TDXD and HER2 amplified disease is very impressive. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that's such a good point about the Cleopatra trial because even in patients who had stable disease, when they continued on trastuzumab and pertuzumab in the post-chemo setting, there are continued responses. I was really interested in that when we studied the trastuzumab biosimilar, and we found that you know some patients after they finished chemo continued to respond and convert to better and better responses. And of course, we see that in clinical practice too. A little bit different here because of course, you have to keep giving the antibody drug conjugate and the toxin, but I think it brings up the question for HER2 positive disease. If the first line trial with TDXD is positive, will we be able to stop after induction and give trastuzumab pertuzumab because of much better quality of life? And I think it brings up the question again of this idea about, you know, sequencing and how we manage toxicity and who we choose specific ADCs for, and I think being aware of the toxicities as well. So I was going to ask you about that hope, because I think, you know, we do see patients who are on you know, her and per, and they've done well, and let's say they progress. And so, you know, the, the data would say that TDXD, you know, fantastic in that next line of setting, but the toxicities it brings as compared to TDM1, I mean, presumably you see that it's not one one drug fits all patients and there are still choices to be made. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really an important point also. And that's sort of the, I think, the beauty of clinical practice and being a clinician is being able to vary what you're doing on the individual situation. You know, patients, when they go on to TDXD and have a great response, I think the question is managing the nausea and 
monitoring for interstitial lung disease, the two really big issues, you know, ILD is not so common like nausea, which occurs in almost everybody, but the risks are so high of problems. Now, as we move the drug earlier into the course of therapy, hopefully we'll see less ILD and less fatal ILD. And for sasetizumab, when we move on to that drug, we just really have to be careful about neutropenia and manage any diarrhea that a patient has that I think is probably going to be more likely related to individual susceptibility to the diarrhea. But neutropenia occurs in most. Again, as we're moving patients earlier in the course of treatment, we're seeing less early neutropenia and it's much later. So I think that, you know, we do tend to put survival first. So these drugs, which have improved survival over standard chemotherapy options are really important for our patients. But we also need to balance that against their quality of life, since outside of HER2-positive disease, we don't seem to be curing anybody. We cure a small number with HER2-positive disease metastatic. So, you know, even switching, dose-reducing and switching to a different ADC, I think, is not unreasonable. One of my patients who had interstitial lung disease with Everolimus resolved quickly with steroids, and that was some time before. So then when she progressed, she actually was on two chemo lines. So it was a while before, right? She got capecitabine and liposomal doxorubicin. And then she was randomized on the tropion BRESTO-1 trial that's looking at a novel trope 2ADC datapotumab deruxtecan to the control arm. So she got gemcitabine. Didn't, you know, responded for a little while, then progressed. So then we gave her, she had her too low disease, TDXD, and two weeks into the TDXD, she was coughing and short of breath. So, and had evidence of pneumonitis on CT. And then of course, as she was getting better, got parainfluenza, which didn't help much, but she started on uh, sasetizumab as her next cycle of treatment and she's still on it now. So that's now been about seven months. So that was great because she, her ILD went away and she's tolerated it well. She hasn't used a growth factor yet. So I think, you know, this, that's a kind of sequencing we might use switching really. And the other thing we've done is to dose reduce, of course, and then you can always go back up on the dose. I actually talked to one patient who's having an excellent response to sasetizumab, but she's really tired about doing her treatment every other week, as opposed to two weeks on when we got completely off label. But, you know, somebody who's been responding for quite some time, I think sometimes that's a not an unreasonable approach also, along with dose reduction and supportive uh, care, you know, mechanisms to for supportive care. Nausea is not such a big deal with sasetizumab. With trastuzumab, druxtecan, we use the triplet initially, and then we give a lot of olanzapine and rescue on Dancitron as well for those patients who are more nauseated. Yeah, I, mean, I think that ability to be a bit creative in those patients who are doing well longer term, I think we see that you know, if we go back in time, we did it with capecitabine or still do. We The CDKs, I, I can see, you know, people starting to change things around a little bit to try and suit the patient. But Belinda, I thought I'd ask, when you're seeing a patient, let's say, with triple negative breast cancer, they had their adjuvant chemotherapies, let's say they relapsed, unfortunately, and then they've had some first-line chemotherapy, and then you're moving to recommend sasetuzumab. How do you describe that to the patient you know, how, how do you talk to them about how this is different to what they've already been through in terms of having had just more standard chemo and now moving to an antibody drug conjugate? 
Yeah, I mean, that patient you describe is in a really tricky situation because we gave them our best standard of care right at the beginning and, you know, obviously that failed them. So by the time they're getting to second line treatment, I'm excited that I've got something that is novel in that sense that this is different. This is the first time the patient's heard from me. This is not standard chemotherapy where that has been the disappointment for metastatic triple negative disease for us, let's say outside of using immunotherapy for those where that might be indicated. So, you know, I say to them, made fun of that magic ball, but I kind of say this is chemotherapy that we're going to try and protect from most of you, but try and target the cancer a little better. And maybe this, our data suggests that we've got, you know, survival data in patients who are even more heavily pretreated than you, we saw in a sense. So that certainly gives all of us enthusiasm and I guess, you know, renewed hope that this will work. And certainly I've had patients where standard of care naked chemotherapy has failed and yet certainly got one lady who's had a CR to sastuzumab and just like Hope described, she gets, you know, 14 months down the track, she was sick of coming in two weeks out of three and we did something novel and she looks at her scan and says, you can't see it, Belinda, so why do I have to keep coming in two weeks out of three? This isn't the situation I've been in very often before using chemotherapy in someone who's actually been refractory in the curative setting. A little different to someone I think you treat in the de novo, the de novo, de novo situation where, you know, you have probably a little more hope in that first line setting. The other thing I wanted to just say about both of these agents is one thing that I've loved is that peripheral neuropathy is an obsession of mine with these and patients are often, this is their biggest toxicity that lingers and kind of hand straps as to how much drug, whether you're talking about drugs like a ribulin or more taxane. So it's actually lovely that it's not, it's not a big deal here. I have had some kind of unusual I guess, neurological things that could be some kind of central neuropathy, I guess, with TDXD in my most recent experience. But um, it seems to be very transient and doesn't last up to the 21 days so you can keep going. So yeah, that's that's a long-winded way, Richard, to answer that question. It just came to me when you were talking, I was thinking of a patient I saw this morning. So Hope, have you had experience in re-challenging with the same antibody drug conjugate? Someone who had six cycles, did well, and for whatever reason wanted to have a break, and then you've either used something else or maybe just had a break and then come back to the same drug and reused it again. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done that with anybody drug conjugates because mostly people haven't stopped. But I certainly would if somebody got an ADC and went off for whatever reason. You know, we're always trying to encourage them not to do that because outcome seems to be worse. Uh, I'd rather dose reduce and give the drug maybe a little get a, you know, people take one cycle off, something like that rather than actually just stop treatment. Because again, every study that's looked at that, two big studies have shown worse outcome when you stop everything and wait for the disease to grow back, which is a fascinating, I think, comment on the genomic instability of the cancer when it starts growing back again. But I think that there are, you know, the idea of using the, maybe when we're giving it in the early stage setting, we'll use it in the late stage setting as another approach and then I think some questions have come up about sequencing these because, say, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, and sasetuzumab clearly use different antibodies, but the payload are all topoisomerase inhibitors. But, you know, I think about the fact that we use different taxanes and different microtubule inhibitors, and they all seem to work in sequence. So I think that that seems quite reasonable. There's also a lot of work going on trying to understand resistance to these ADCs, you know, whether you downregulate receptors. And so if we're using antibodies that have similar receptor targeting that you might want to sequence them with a chemo drug in between too. So there's a lot of different ways to try and think about how you would give this. I think we give hormone therapy when a patient has been on hormone therapy and has stopped it and then we give it again. So I think this is a reasonable approach. I think the other thing is with the intracranial 
you know, responses that we're starting to see, you know, it probably depends on where your patient is at and at, at what time. I've got patients who perhaps normally I wouldn't have treated with no extracranial progression, but intracranial problems that we treat with local therapy. Now my enthusiasm to get one of these drugs up there is going up. So yeah, the sites of disease, I think for me, make a little bit of a difference to that as well. And the burden of disease. I think if you had a two millimeter mat in the brain, you could treat with stereotactic radiation. You maybe you wouldn't, but you have multiple lesions. I agree. I think that now that we know we have drugs that cross the blood brain barrier and, you know, we've seen some remarkable tiny data sets, but in terrible disease, like leptomeningeal disease. So I think that's definitely been our approach as well. Yeah, I just and I think in oncology, we always see when there's a, a winning treatment. And I think the ADCs are certainly a winning treatment. We see an explosion of development. I mean, not not just copycats, but similar drugs being developed. And you can sort of see the day when you've got you know the, the same antibody with different drugs attached, or the same drug with different antibodies attached and we'll have this you know sort of explosion of different options and trying to choose which one to go with and how we mix and match them around it's going to be uh you know fascinating area with you know will we have enough room to do all the clinical trials with all the different combinations and sequences i think that's going to be a challenge for us have you, have you seen that sort of starting to happen a bit hope not too much yet but i think that you know, when datopotamab, Drextacam, when we see the data from Tropix 01 and then Tropix 02, so second and third line hormone receptor positive and then first line triple negative, you know, and if Destiny Breast 06 shows that there's improved survival from using TDXD compared to standard chemo in the first line setting, I think then we will really have, I mean, it'll be a challenge to do trials in specific settings, and except for if you, you know, really focus on the patients who previously had that, you know, a number of different ADCs. So now there's a whole bunch of sequencing studies that are popping up to try and investigate exactly that question. Of course, as we move some agents into the early stage setting, maybe that question won't be as big of an issue in the metastatic setting. It's it's just hard to know what generates resistance to the payload and or is it more to the antibody I mean, there's multifactorial mechanisms of resistance and then of course maximizing the efficacy of the drug with and minimizing the toxicities in our patients so when we give drugs sequentially what is the best sequence and how long a response makes it worth it for them i think that's a great way to bring this podcast to a close and it sums it up beautifully i think always remembering yes we want efficacy but the patient and the toxicities and the quality of life has to always be you know a huge part of the equation in deciding the, the treatments for these patients but clearly a really exciting time in this area a real breakthrough i think for our treatment for patients with metastatic breast cancer with i think a lot of developments uh, lying in the not too distant future with that i'd like to really thank hope rugo from san francisco and belinda yo here from the austin and thank you to gilead for sponsoring this podcast thanks very much thanks Thank you.